Today is often called Palm Sunday. It's been mentioned a, f- a few times already, even as Dan was reading. But it's that traditional name that's given to the Sunday before Christ's crucifixion. Not every church calls it that. It kind of got overwhelmed by the Catholic Church and all the traditions of that got wrapped up in just these religious orders and didn't have any significance of what actually was going on. But as you saw in Matthew 21 and Luke 19, it, it's a very significant time. So from the birth of Jesus all the way until his ascension into heaven, history was marked over and over again by his realization of the Old Testament prophecies. Each one is confirming the fulfillment of what God had promised. And each of those fulfillments really clarifies the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And each covenant marks that unfolding of God's grace as we think about what he has done, his mercy on humanity. So the scripture we read this morning, as I mentioned, it really highlighted that transition in Jesus' ministry, a fulfillment of prophecy, a transition from the old covenant to the new. It was not insignificant. It was fulfilled what was written by Zechariah, as he read, and that was talked about in the other prophets. We might even see it in the book of Amos here soon. All the things that God has done for his people and promised for them, and here is Jesus coming in on a donkey. Each step across those coats and palm branches was one step closer to welcoming him as king, but also a step closer to his death on the cross. As we read, people everywhere were saying different things about who Jesus was. Did you hear some of those? Some were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. The disciples said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And not to be left out, the Pharisees scoffed, teacher, get control of your people over there. But some in the crowd even said, this is the prophet Jesus. And at the very end of Matthew 21, verse 11, Matthew says the whole city was looking on and wondering, who is this? Who is this? So we're going to answer that question today as we look again at the book of Colossians. We did this a couple of weeks ago. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 13 through 20. But let's pray as we begin our study of God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, the effect that it has had on people ever since your first words were written and uh, revealed to your people. God, as we are here today, we ask that you would reveal to us and give us understanding of who you are, who your son is, what he has done for us and creation. And Lord, as we read through this passage, that we'll just be standing before you, bowing before you, even falling at our knees before you. God, just thank you for the truths that are proclaimed so clearly and accurately in your word. And we just ask that you'd allow us to understand and allow them to guide us, not based on our own strength, but on your strength alone and your spirit working in us. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus entering into Jerusalem, it it wasn't the first time people were wondering, who is this Jesus? And it's not going to be the last time either. Around the world, people make up a Jesus who fits in with their personality, with their priorities, with, you know, their spiritual activities they might be doing. They throw Jesus in there. And in our neck of the woods, well, specifically Hollywood, but uh, movies mock who Jesus is. You might have heard, dear tiny infant Jesus. Oh, I like the Christmas Jesus. Oh, I want Jesus to be one who parties because I like to party. And I want my Jesus to party. Those Those are all from one movie. But there's no respect for what is sacred, none whatsoever. And 
It goes on, not just in one movie, but over and over again. Normally, you hear the name Jesus Christ not as something of praise, but as something of cursing. As we think about that respect, there's no respect for that personhood of who God is, who Jesus is, or his deity as God. He's treated kind of like a genie in a bottle. You're praying, you're saying these things, hoping that something happens as a result of using this name just right. And it's really nothing new, and it shouldn't surprise us as you think about it. You know, in John 7, verse 6, Jesus said to his unbelieving brothers, You know, the world hates me because I testify about it that their deeds are evil. So there's no respect for what is sacred, and that evil deeds just keep going. I think the truth of Jesus' identity is often brought into question, and the early church, it was no different. This was like the core of what people wanted to talk about, the sticking point of false teachers. Who is Jesus? Let's bring you a different truth. It was really that stumbling block that was just thrown in the way so they wouldn't make it to truth. They wouldn't make it to knowing, bearing fruit and growing as we talked about last week. So as we look at Colossians 1 today, we're going to see Paul's emphasis on the truth, the undeniable truth, the gospel truth we talked about last time. And the church in Colossae, they had heard the truth. We kind of saw that. And by the grace of God, hearing led to eternal results. Does anyone remember what those results were? There were three that kind of stand out. Faith, love, hope, you can, and grace. Yes, all those things. They recognized God's grace, and this changed their lives from sinners to saints. And they're called saints throughout as a result of what God had done. But as we, if you were to read through the rest of Paul's letter, all the way through that he wrote to the Colossians, we find out that not everybody in the city is as happy about the truth as the Colossians were. They weren't happy about what Epaphras came and teached. And they don't just not believe these things. They don't just say, oh, okay. But they insist that others believe something different, a different gospel, not the truth. They insist that that truth is found really in some other source, that it's it's not the gospel that they heard, but it's, it's something else altogether. So it's called the Colossian heresy or false teaching. And it went for the jugular of Christianity. As we've sang this morning in many of our songs, we've talked about Jesus Christ. And that's what these false teachers were saying. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? So as we look today at these verses, we're going to see that Paul leaves no question as to who Jesus is. Who is this person who came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, walking across the coats and branches of individuals, being proclaimed as king, and yet so many people still, still say, who is this? Let's read Colossians 1, 13 through 20 to see just who Christ is. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything 
he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we read that, were you just in awe of who Christ really is? There's no more complete or concise view of our Lord given beyond this. And for the church in Colossae, getting the truth right was huge importance. And it was God's focus in this letter. That's what he wanted them to do, get the truth right. And even Paul's prayer and desire and concern for the people was that they would grow and just have continued growth and understanding in who God was and spiritual wisdom. And that then those things would lead to bearing fruit and increasing as it said the gospel was doing all over the world. But Paul's prayer and the so-called you know, truth peddlers of these city spiritualists, they were not on the same page. They didn't mesh in any way, shape, or form. The false teachers that prowled the streets of Colossae, they had very different ideas. Things like truth, walking to please the Lord, even growing in a relationship with God, these were not the focus of the Colossian false teachers. They were really enemies of the cross as opposed to friends of truth. And at the core of all of their denial, everything they were doing was the sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. Is Christ really anything that we need for salvation? They wanted God, as the world does around us. They wanted superior knowledge that would lead them to some spiritual realm. But they even worshipped angels, hoping that that would help them reach their spiritual goals. If we do all these things, they practice asceticism, you know, beating themselves, preventing themselves from eating food, whatever they could to, to say that, oh, we are there. They even followed Jewish traditions they threw into the mix. And so their hope was to find a self-made salvation in every place they looked, except for where it could actually be found. So have you ever played hide and seek with uh, a little kid? We've got four boys, so we've done that a few times. You know, they hide in plain sight, and they don't think you can see them. And you go looking around the room, trying to find them. Are you under the table? No, no, not there. Are you behind the curtain? Nope, not there. How about in the closet? No, no, not there. And suddenly, they jump up giggling and laughing. I'm right here, I'm right here. And they've been there in plain sight the whole time. Well, that's sort of like what's happening to the false teachers. The truth was in plain sight. But instead of pretending to not see the truth of Christ, which was there, they're actually blind, blind to knowing these things. And they're carried away by lies and deceit and want to bring everybody with them. Paul says it so well as he wrote in the book of Colossians. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we start in verse 13 today to see the foundation of salvation that God has established, to, to see what God has written to those who believe and follow him. And Paul was writing to believers, wanting to make sure they knew the truth, not those who are perishing. And Paul never undermines the gospel of God. He under, never undermines the truth of what God has done through Jesus. But instead, he's building on it. And as he's talking to the church, he says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, 
Jesus Christ. So look at this foundation in verse 13 that God has established. It's his beloved son, the verse ends with. And then Paul slowly pulls back the curtain to reveal the glorious identity of the Son of God, as we'll see in the verses that follow. And these verses, our Lord's true identity is revealed by viewing him in relation to who God is, in relation to all of creation, and even in relation to the church. So as we see these things, the false ideas that work to erode away are really destroyed at every turn as God is caring for his church. The believer's faith, love, and hope, it's strengthened and increased by Paul's message to them. And hopefully that is what happens this morning as you hear these things. You know, it was really Paul's desire in writing the Colossians that they would realize that Christ is preeminent. It's not a word we use every day, but as you read through here, hopefully you'll find that that puts someone in first place above everything, above and higher than all other things. Christ is preeminent. So verse 13 says, God, or he, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father has actually extracted from this domain of darkness and from a corrupt jurisdiction and then placed into a righteous jurisdiction, the kingdom of his beloved Son. The foundation for salvation has been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Salvation is only found in Christ. It's not found in all these other areas, all these other things that are put out there. But in Christ, we have redemption. We have forgiveness. Sin is atoned for. Our debt is paid. Verse 14 continues that, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That in whom is talking about the Son of God and nothing else. Paul lays down this truth without shame, without hesitation, without mincing words. You know, any other option is invalid. It doesn't have any foundation to stand on. It's not even reliable. As you hear the sham gospel, the sham foundations that are being put out there, they don't have any focus on truth. They don't have any bearing on truth. But Paul knew the persistence of evil people. If you've read through any of Paul's life, he was bombarded by evil people. And he knew that the believers need to be ready as they hear these things, as the bombardment comes, as others are around trying to poke holes in that dike. They need to have an accurate view of who the Son of God is as the foundation. And then as a result, be able to stand against these things, stand against the convincing untruths that would come knocking. And there's a lot of convincing untruths. So the, the pastor of the church, Epaphras, he was so concerned about the truth he actually traveled 1,300 miles to go tell Paul, hey, this is what's going on in the city. This is a problem. I need your help. Can you uh, give us some help here? And Paul does that through this letter. The church hadn't been infected yet. It doesn't look like the untruth was invaded into their proximity quite yet, but it was there. The danger was imminent. The Colossian revisionist, they didn't like this version of salvation. They didn't like what God had to say about the word. It didn't fit their Greek philosophy, which was kind of mixed with mysticism. It had a little angelic worship going on, topped with a touch of tradition, just throw in some Judaism for good measure there. But the pagan culture in which the Colossians lived, they worshiped many gods, not the God. And so they would do whatever they could to promote 
and protect the gods that they worshiped. So this false philosophy starts with the idea that Jesus isn't really human. He's just kind of nobody. He's not even God. He's not a person. He's not deity. And so the, the truth that was given to the Colossians that they believed, that can't be true if Jesus isn't God. According to the heresy, God was good and matter was evil. I don't see matter on the screen yet. There it is. <laughs> matter was evil. And so they had this idea of descending gods. Here is God or their supreme being. And there can't be any mix between him and matter because good and evil don't mix. It's this idea of deism. And because a good God can't have created evil matter, then Jesus can't be a human. He can't be a part of this. God can't even really be involved in the world and its creation. This whole idea was more developed in the second century, but these were the, the roots of it. By the second century, it was called Gnosticism. And it was very, very well developed, but it's far removed from the truth that the Colossians heard. Now, in such a scheme, Jesus was simply one of these higher emanations. You know, he's kind of good with the angels, and then there's demons which are, which are bad, and then those have little emanations. It's like just a little puff, nothing really of the real God, but just, you know, a little representation somehow that uh, God has created. It's like an amoeba that gives off a, a little new amoeba. This one amoeba stays the same, and all these new amoebas form. But that was a scheme they thought up, and uh, it did not fit with the truth. The only way to break through this was with some help from the good emanations, removing the demonic emanations so that you could kind of know God and get to know him. And uh, does this idea of emanations even sound like something that the world would believe today? I see some heads shaking, yes. Well, would you believe it? Last month of all things, I think... March 17th, Madonna, the, the great singer, <laughs> she got a tattoo of what are called the Kabula emanations. The Kabula emanations. I can't even say that word altogether. The Kabula emanations. So it's like this Jewish mystic tree of life that talks about these different gods and how they kind of work in different ways. It's even interrelated with yoga. And that goes right along with Hinduism because their deities are considered emanations of this greater reality, the ultimate reality. Mormonism or Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witness, they have their own version of emanations. It seems like a word, oh, that's, that's from way back then. We wouldn't be believing that same thing. And yet it is still active and effective today. And actually the current word of faith movement, which Pastor Wayne has talked about, we even saw a little video up here of month or two ago of one of those groups. They say that we are just little gods. We are emanations from God and have the power of God and can be God. That's a big nope right there. A big no. If you see that or hear that, no. That's one of these lies that's coming into the church and it's not the truth. But it's there to try to dissuade us from the truth, to pull us away from God in ways that seem convincing, that sound good, that look great, but they are not true worship of God. So as we look through the next four, few verses, we'll see the truth of who the Son of God really is. He's not an emanation, a lesser spirit, something not even human, but no, he is the Son of God. Verse 15, 
It says, he, speaking of the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And so with two descriptions, Paul refutes the idea that Jesus is simply one being among the series of lesser spirits. He refutes the idea that Jesus can just be dismissed as nobody. But the Son of God, he is the image of the invisible God. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God said, let us make man in our image. So we know that we're made in the image of God, but man is not a perfect image of God. Look around, look around. Is anyone a perfect image of God? Don't say that out loud. Don't answer that. <laughs> we have some of God's qualities. We have, you know, intellect, we have will, we have even just emotions. They allow us to make decisions, things like that, choose, feel. But as a created being, we are fallen. We are not in the same place morally as God is. God is holy. We are not. And there's a lot of God-like attributes that we can't even attain to. There's omniscience, his omnipresence, his immutability, and even his omnipotence. Hopefully, again, none of us think we have any of those powers in spades. Some of us may think that, but we are human, not divine. And as much as we want to claim those abilities, they are not for us. And so Jesus here, he is the image of the invisible God. He's not just simply human, but he has everything that God has. He is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. He hasn't become an image when he became flesh, but he was this image of God from all eternity. John, when talking about Jesus in John 1.1, I think some of you may know this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yes, he was in the beginning with God. Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That's amazing. So by using the term image here, Paul emphasized both God being represented in Christ and also the manifestation of God. He is the full, final, and complete revelation of God. He's God in human flesh. He's not just one of these little pictures on the screen here. I'm going to hide that for now. But that was his claim and the unanimous testimony of scripture that Jesus is God. And that second part, he was the firstborn of all creation. Many have used that to say, oh no, he can't have been God because he's a created being. Firstborn must mean he was created. The Arians from the early church, the Catholic church took that on early on and then threw it away out of their doctrine several hundred years later. Jehovah's Witness still hold this to this day that Jesus was born, he was created, and he must not be the eternal God if he was created at some time. But such an interpretation, it completely doesn't look at the Greek, it doesn't look at what was being said. The actual term there, prototokos, firstborn, it ignores that whole context if you say that here's a person who was, must have been born and created. One commentary said, although prototokos, firstborn, can mean firstborn chronologically, it refers primarily to position or rank. So in both Greek and Jewish cultures, you hear about the firstborn. They have an inheritance, right? They're, they get all the promise and blessing. But it doesn't refer to the person who's born first. And I can think of one example that's very clear from the Old Testament of 
the firstborn not being the one who was chronologically born first, Jacob and Esau. Esau, while he was born first, Jacob was considered the firstborn. Jacob received the inheritance. And Jesus is the one here with the right to that inheritance of all creation as the firstborn of all creation. As we even look further through scripture, Psalms 89, 27, God says of the Messiah, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest king of the earth. In Revelation 1, 5, it uses that same word. Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. And he's not the first one to rise from the dead chronologically, but he is over and above and preeminent over all those who are raised and who live eternally. As he says in Romans 8.29 as well, it talks about this firstborn in relation to the church. So we've seen firstborn multiple times throughout scripture and almost never is it used as a chronological term. Here as in other passages, it means the highest in rank, the most important, not just the first created. So when we read and interpret scripture, there's three rules to determine the outcome of our understanding. Do you know those three rules? I heard someone say something over here. Context is one of them, yeah. What's number two? Context. And number three? Context. Yes, context is everything. I've heard many Bible teachers and professors use this phrase, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That was first said by a Canadian pastor. But that's saying that any part of scripture that's removed out, and you're just reading this apart from any context, anything that's going on, you can make it mean whatever you want and justify whatever you're saying by that, taking it out of its context. I might need that later, but we'll see. <laughs> but here, as you look at who Christ is and what he's doing, to come to a conclusion that he is the firstborn refers to him as being created. That neglects the very next word. It neglects the whole context of the passage. If Paul were teaching that Christ was created, a created being, he would be agreeing with the false teachers, agreeing with the, the truth, the false truth that he was up against. But like I said, the context makes the defense even more clear. Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Did you catch that bit about creation there? If the Son of God were a created being, how could he be the source of creation for all things? You may have noticed that when we read the whole section earlier, that Paul uses this word all a bunch of times. We call it 100% language when we talk of counseling and other things. All means all, and that's all all means. It's 100% inclusive of whatever is being referred to. You can't just say, yeah, I did all the work, and, you know, 99% of it is still left on the, in your bedroom to do. No, if you say you've done all of it, you're meaning all, 100%. And each time we see that little three-letter word, it gives a full significance of who Christ is. It really sheds more light on his person. It isn't redundant at all, but it shines a bright light on the wondrous reality of Jesus. Every time, all, 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 it keeps turning up the wonders and glories of who Christ is. 
until all you can do is fall and your face in the light of his glory. John wrote, John wrote in Revelation 4, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, the 24 elders fall down before him. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Was the world created? Was man created? Were all things created? That's an emphatic yes. And all things were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, authorities, thrones, dominions, powers. Paul excludes all other possibilities of a source of creation other than Jesus himself. Jesus was not a created being. He is God who created all things. The only further it only further emphasizes the fact that he is before all things. The next verse 17, Paul goes on, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ existed before anything else was created and only God existed before all of creation. Genesis 1.1, I think you know those words, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God. With his power to create, he also has the power to sustain, to hold together what he's created. In him, all, holds, all things hold together. So as we think about the unchanging laws of physics, the ideas of science, the math that is solidified and you, you can't ever go and tell someone two plus two doesn't equal four because it's set, it's set in stone. These things that man has discovered and depend upon for scientific reasoning, they, sorry, I can't, look at, I can't look at my wife at the same time and not cry here as I, as I think about this. <laughs> but apart from these, these things, all of it hangs on the work of Christ sustaining his creation. Apart from him, every man-made lie, every argument, it just falls apart because logic and reason can't exist apart from a sustaining creator. I don't know why I'm tearing up even, but... I read through this multiple times and was thinking, thinking it through. And again, I was talking to Shannon last week, last time. I was like, I thought I got it out of my system. Or, but no, to think, to keep thinking of the, just the wonders of who God is, it's, it's amazing. And the world keeps going against this day by day by day to try to tear down the truth of the gospel. You know, if the lies of the Colossian heretics were accepted as truth, that Jesus really is no big deal or that he's just some puff off that supreme being, then any manner of God or spirituality or creation story would be fine. It would be valid even because whatever fits the moment or the culture that's pushing or even the individual be, would be accepted as truth. And that's what's going on across the world, across these nations day by day. You know, some impersonal force would be given credit for creation. Have you seen that? Some culturally appropriate being would control nature have you heard that? It's on the news every night. Mother Nature's got something in for us this week. We've got another dry day. No, that's not quite how it goes. But these false teachers are still trying to invade the truth of the church and the truth of a living God. They're using whatever means they find possible. So in our hands, we have the word of God. We have absolute truth. But the world doesn't want truth. 
The world doesn't want these things. They'd rather take the wide gate that leads to destruction rather than the narrow gate that leads to life. Jesus' claim in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's too narrow for most to accept. And so we've come up with and we've accepted ideas that are so similar to the Colossian heresies. So let's keep looking continually at the person of Christ, who he is, and realign our thinking with the truth of who he is. This is essential as we see him in relation to God, as we see him in relation to creation, and even as we submit to him as the head of the church. That was Paul's next argument in verse 18. And he, the Son of God, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, the Son of God, is the head of the church. There's several word pictures in the Bible used to describe the church. You can imagine them. Family, kingdom, vineyard, a flock, a building, and ultimately a bride. But the most profound word picture used here and having no Old Testament equivalent is that of a body. The church is a body and Christ is the head of the body. If you draw stick figures, you might draw little chicken scratches all over your sheet, but until you put a head on it, you don't know what it represents. The head distinguishes the other members as what they are a part of. They're not just random. They're part of a body. God is calling the church a body, and it looks at the church as a living organism, much more than a stick figure, but it's inseparably tied by Christ as the head. He controls every part of it and gives it life and direction. And his life lived out through all the members provides the unity of the body. Christ is not an emanation from God. I think we've established that. He's not an angel who serves the church. He is the head of the church. And the, Christ, the church also originates in Jesus. It's not a human-made thing. It doesn't originate in someone's thoughts from the early A.D., no, it's Christ himself is the source of the church. Verse 18 says, he is the beginning. Writing to the church in Ephesus, God says, Paul says about God, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is he who gives life to the church. His sacrificial death, his resurrection, on our behalf provided a new life. Life in the body, the church. Speaking of life, the next phrase even talks about that. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is alive. There's that word again that we saw a couple of verses ago, prototokos. Jesus is alive. And of all those who have been raised from the dead, he is of the highest importance. He is the most and superior of all of those. He is of highest rank, prototokos. As a result of his death and resurrection, Jesus has come to have first place in everything. He is preeminent, that verse ends with. To see the full extent of Christ's preeminence, we can look at over to another place where Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, talking about Jesus. It says, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven or on earth, 
and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus reigns supreme over the entire world, the visible world, the unseen world, and the church. Verse 19 really seals the deal on who Christ is. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. It wasn't spread out over a bunch of little doses to angels or spirits. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus our Lord. It is the fullness of the Almighty God that was so pleased to dwell in Christ. Such a belief in Jesus as God made flesh is an essential part to the truth of the gospel. And if verse 19 tells us that nothing of God's fullness is lacking in Christ, then verse 20 contends that nothing in creation which can be reconciled to God is outside the power of God to reconcile through Christ. It's incredible to think of how these all step and build on each other. Once more, that little word all is significant, whether it's all the fullness of God or to reconcile, reconcile to himself all things. Ponder the certainty of what's said in verse 20 with me. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, whether on earth or in heaven. The need for reconciliation between God and man and his creation, it implies something. It implies that the, the relationship is broken already. It's not like we're in a wonderful state of bliss with God and we just have to make that bliss even more. No, we are completely separated from him in our relationship. There's disharmony, there's strife between the creator and his creation. And if that reconciliation is necessary, if a relationship is broken, something has to be done to make that whole. And reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship, bringing it from its two disparaging parts into one. It's the same thing as we saw in verse 13, deliverance from the domain of darkness into his kingdom. It's a change of your jurisdiction of who is ruling. The ancient world knew what it was to ask questions about reconciliation. It's a word that was used all the time in their financial systems. How do we reconcile for the slaves we lost? How do we reconcile for the money you owe me? How do we reconcile for a life before God that we are guilty, we are in sin? But without the truth of the gospel, there's no chance of reconciliation. That's the answer here is so comprehensive, absolute, and decisive that Paul gives. You know, it's not from man, but from God that the initiation has come. It says it is not through all these little emissaries of God that the work has been done, but through him, in one Christ, through him the reconciliation has been made. The impossibility of reconciliation to a holy God, as men saw it then, between heaven and earth, has found its solution. Not in some otherworldly drama of all these things that the Gnostics or these, these false teachers were bringing out, but precisely it was occurring in a certain place at a time well remembered where Christ endured a bloody and painful death on a Roman cross. That was the end of verse 20. He reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, whether on earth or in heaven. 
Jesus' blood was the only source of true peace. Paul spelled it out more in another letter. He said, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Amazing to think of what God has done through this one man, Christ, his son. The summary of the gospel found in verse 20 is so profound. It's the culmination of the identity of who Christ is and his work on earth as both God and man. Paul made sure to include that. Here is God's deity on Christ, his fullness. Here is his humanity as he dies on the cross and was raised again, the firstborn of all creation. In everything, he is preeminent. He should take first place and highest honor in our lives. You know, the offers of the world, they should just fall away under his excellencies. Through God's word, we're able to sit in on Paul's defense of the one and only God. When the church got this letter, it would have just been read, and they would have known the truth from error. I hope you found a renewed, powerful, even humbling look at who Jesus is and who he is not. In your bulletin, you may have noticed there's like a little note sheet in there. Some of these could have been filled in along the way as you read, but if you haven't fold, pulled it out yet, now's a great time to think about who God is and who he is not, just as a review. He is the Son of God. He is very God of very God. His rank and importance is higher than all creation. These are undeniable things that Paul has written to the church to let them know who, who Christ is in relation to God. But it's also known who he is in relation to all of creation. He is not created. He created all things. He existed before creation. And he even sustains all of creation. It's hard to review these even again and not just want to bow before him as the elders and those in heaven did at the end time and worshiped. And not only do we see God in or Jesus in relation to God and the church, we see him in relation to the church, sorry, God in creation. We see him in relation to the church, how he is the head of the church. He is the source of the church. He is the one who reconciles us to himself. And as a man, he made peace by his blood on the cross. He has first place in everything. That doesn't exclude a few things. That means everything. Remember that word all? It's 100%. All of our thinking, all of our life, all of our activities, everything Christ should have first place. Christ is preeminent. As you dwell on who Christ is, as you review even the book of Colossians in your reading or look at your notes later, if he were to ask you, 
what would you say if he says, who do you say that I am? Would you respond like the people around who said, oh, maybe you're John the Baptist? Oh, possibly Elijah. Others even said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus asked then to Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? What was his response? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I hope that's also what God has revealed to you today through his word, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. There aren't other options. There aren't other ways. There aren't other whatever has been made up to, to pull you away. There's only one truth, and that's based in God's word. There's only one Savior, and that is Jesus Christ himself. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the wonders of who you are, as we know the truth and are firmly established in these things, we just ask that your word will guide our thoughts, your son will direct our understanding, that your salvation will pull away the blinders of sin and allow us to see the truth that is right here in front of us. God, as we come to you, we want you to have preeminence in our lives. We want you to take first place in our thoughts, our activities, our, our days, from morning to night that we will praise and worship you because you are worthy of all these things. You are worthy of all glory and honor. God, thank you that you have made it so clear for us, for the, from the Colossian church all the way until now, that there is no one else, there is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we keep pondering on this, just help it overwhelm and overflow into our lives and into the lives of others, and that uh, as your church, we will be an active body that is bringing new life to the community around us through your headship, through your direction. In Jesus' name, amen.